to Rolling Bones the Osteopathic Podcast with your hosts, Dr. James and Dr. Dante. And uh, we're coming back to continue our discussion from two episodes ago. We had gotten through a bit of uh, Civil War history and the influence on that Civil War on medicine. Uh, and uh, we even mentioned some Greek stuff and how uh, fit uh, some of those Greek statues are. But speaking uh, of Greek stuff, we took a segue to talk to some folks about daddy issues, which we did. And if you haven't watched that episode, episode 31, it is excellent. You should uh, check it out. Uh, and in the meantime, we're moving our way forward in history as we discuss how American uh, Americans were innovating their healthcare system. They were. Um, shooting from the hip as Americans are want to do at times. Um, a quick a final reference to the Civil War. Even the hospitals got involved in the war. And uh, it was interesting. A lot of the battles of the Civil War, they occurred near cities, as you can imagine, strategic cities of strategic importance. But there were no real major military hospitals as we know them today, no mass units, nothing like that. So many of the hospitals were uh, that were dealing with the casualties from the Civil War were all civilian. And they were overwhelmed by not just the, the volume of casualties, but the types of casualties. Because, you know, when you're living in the mid-1800s, you get shot. You get shot with a musket. You get shot with a uh, maybe a rifle, but you generally generally didn't get shot with a cannonball. And uh, so these were some uh, major issues. And what the hospitals faced on top of that is quite often they would save a life initially, and then infection would set in and take that life that that was initially saved. Uh, maybe up, upwards of several weeks after the initial injury. So we we saw this major uh, uh, issue, a, a crisis, if you will, with the hospitals. They weren't prepared for modern trauma. They weren't prepared to deal with these kinds of casualties. The um, It's funny you mentioned a lot of the Civil War stuff because... So knowing that this will eventually tie back into, so we never lost sight of that. We're trying to explore the osteopathic identity, so on and so forth. But we made mm -hmm. the agreement that um, kind of this, you kind of agreed with it by joining the show, a type of agreement with the listeners that in order to describe and articulate the osteopathic thing in context, it's worthwhile to have a picture of the bigger medicine thing in context. And a lot of the phenomenon that, directly led into um uh dr at still founder dude's um skill set practical expertise and knowledge that led to how he practiced medicine prior to doing the osteopathic thing is forged out of his experience through the civil war right so um there's kind of two parallel threads running in this one it's here's a story of medicine as it shaped in the united states then there's like this like side plot which is actually the main plot but hey you know Plots are hard. There's this idea that by exploring this, we set the foreground background. We set the background for exploring the foreground discussion, which is now in the background of how does this create osteopathy? 
right? And then, you know, from there, we move on to the next set of discussions. Well, and it's um, common for us to discuss medical history in terms of discoveries, you know, discoveries of sulfa drugs, discovery of insulin, discovery of antibiotics, and and it's my all pet of... favorite just because the story is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and there are plenty, you know, penicillin's discovery, I think, is just about as ridiculous. <laughs> like, oops, hey, this is kind of cool stuff. But if we, I remember we, the guy didn't believe it the first two or three times it happened. Like, he, like, it was like, this can't possibly be a thing. And then after <laughs> it kept happening, he's like, okay, this might be a thing. And enough people don't die. And he's like, okay, yeah, I'm on to something here. I got it. By George, I think I've got it. Yeah, and we, actively, we talk of, yeah. we, we we talk in terms of medical discoveries as as medicine was and physicians and scientists were were searching for answers and solutions to problems that they couldn't solve and this was a, a direct um uh influence on how how we talk about history but what we don't talk about very much is the provision of healthcare and how that changed and why it changed. There are a number of uh, uh, influences in the background to all of this that include things like labor and uh, military service and uh, financial and political forces at play that shaped our, our system today. And you could say that some of these forces at play early on led to the paradox that is the American medical system. The paradox that I, I see in that we have some of the, the most advanced technology and scientific institutions in the world, and yet we have such a disparity with actual healthcare outcomes from Infant and mortality, more infant mortality rates, maternal mortality rates, and lifespan uh, just does not compete with other countries. So, talking about the this history, I think is important. So we move on from the Civil War. We have a a country that spans from sea to shining sea. We have a great expanse and a a great. Um, divide both in wealth and access to resources, but also a, a, a geographical expanse that changes how we're going to need to do things. We um, spread out uh, and also urbanize. We have, after the Emancipation Proclamation, we have slaves that are sent into sharecropping and then sent north into inner cities and we have labor as manufacturing develops. All of these things influence uh, how medicine was going to be provided and how how do we fund medicine? You know, we 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 do some tongue in cheek, some some laughing about chicken guts on bellies and and some of the um unusual treatments at uh, frontier locations. But at the same time, it's pretty easy to pay for a chicken gut. I said people paid for this. This this was a business model as much as it was a service, right? Right. Um, yeah, and and it, quite often, you know, if, if you need a chicken gut, you already had a chicken. You didn't even have to pay extra for that. 
And who knows? You know, you get the guts and you also fry up the chicken. You have barbecue and treatment all at the same time. All right. It's good that you mentioned the geographic expanse because something that might not be intuitive uh, without knowing the, the, I guess, the punchline already is why does the sea to shining sea comment matter in this discussion, which, which it actually does. The, um, the country was so large and travel so difficult that what ended up happening was various schools of medicine and various cultures of how to perform medicine were distributed across the geographic uh, United States. What ends up happening is along the East Coast, you have a very uh, Franco-Germanic, European, essentially, medical system, greatly informed. That's how we end up with the Greek thing. Greatly informed by, um, and during the pre-recording, we're trying to remember all the threads that we spun together in the first episode. But there's that Wheel of Time reference again. Um, anyway. <laughs> As the wheel turns. It's been a minute, but... Uh, there was this idea that in the coastal states, and in this case, the East Coast, because the West Coast is no, not yet a thing. It's a frontier in Badlands right now. But in the East Coast, there's this idea of medicine evolving into a profession, becoming something that's very erudite, becoming something that is um, to be looked upon with prestige. They were actually looking at it as a profession as opposed to a trade. Um, implication being that professionals and tradesmen are two different classes of person, right? Um, there is this idea in, I guess, the old country, in Europe, basically, where to be a professional, there's there's a guild affiliation, there is a rank, there's a prestige, there's an honor, there's decorum involved with this. And there's this camp of physicians in the United States who wanted American physicians to carry that same social rank, right? That gravitas. Right, right. Um, the white coating, the white tower and all that good stuff. Hey, there's mm -hmm. a second real time reference. The um, <laughs> white tower means something outside of Tarvalin, though, but uh, to, to white tower something, the high towering, that's the phrase, high towering, not uh, white tower. The ivory tower. There you go. It's a high white tower, which is essentially Tarvalin. They thought mm -hmm. about this when they wrote this thing. But <laughs> when you go to um, the frontier, right, you cross the Mississippi, right? But you're not quite in um, com like Comancheria. You're not in the native, un quote unquote, the badlands where it's not yet America. But you're not in the urban lands. You're in the frontier. Mm -hmm. The the clout, the the need for prestige, all of that like a decorum, pomp, kind of falls apart. Right? Your physician can't survive just being a physician. He also has to be probably a salesman kind of a pharmacist that wasn't a word back then probably also a farmer etc cetera, etc cetera. but what ends up happening is the mode of practicing medicine is cheaper in the frontier because the even the thought process of you know they develop x-rays eventually this is not in this timeline obviously but imagine trying to perform medicine away from your technology centers away from your production centers using only what's available in the local mom and pop general store in the time when electricity is just being developed and you hope it creates the a different culture well stocked yes right yeah you, you get chicken guts you get chicken guts and whatever herbs are available and what the native american population was willing to share with you if if they were if there were relations that were reasonably stable enough for that right but that that all that that differentiation is a consequence of our geography. Imagine if all of this happened in a tight space, right? This doesn't happen if the entire country is the size of New Jersey. You're too close to make this phenomenon happen. Mm -hmm. But 
how big is the United States, one country, even at this point, compared to a large European country, this minus Russia, the size ratio is insane, such that you have this wide differentiation under the banner of technically one country. This matters because this is also the premise of why there's so many disparate, varying competing systems in the States, I assume, right? It's because the systems are geographically distributed, because the environments are radically different, you end up creating local phenomenon, but every local phenomenon aggregated together makes a patchwork system. And these local phenomenon could build followers and generate um, local headlines so that you could develop hydropathic medicine, you could develop mesmerism, you can develop all of these different things. And then you finally start connecting these widely disparate places with the railroads and to some extent with the Pony Express. And these ideas can start spreading eastward. And now these erudite physicians of the East who are uh, college educated. The Tarballum have... witches. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're saying this lovingly. Uh, from New Jersey. We, we and I went to school in Philly, so to, with love to our East Coast friends for sure. There you and, go. Please um, don't deport me. <laughs> uh, we will not report to deport. Thank you. <laughs> and but... So, with all of this, we have we have ideas that are spreading, but then we have some uh, other forces. We have this industrialization that's going on in the United States. And the initial healthcare was not truly healthcare in the first place. The, the, the first truly group provided medical att attention was sick care, not healthcare. And the reason for this was if you got sick and you were at work and you could not work, you were at risk of losing your wages and your employer was at risk for losing a productive employee. So if you think about, you look at our healthcare system as it is now, and it really doesn't strike me as truly designed to maintain health. There is more attention now than ever before uh, regarding preventive medicine, but that was not built into the system's DNA because it Let's was directly, it, was re, it is now rebranding for sure. Uh, but the system originally was not built to prevent illness. It was to prevent lost wages. And much of that was not due to illness in the first place. It was due to injury at work. Now, you could argue that some of that illness, some of the injury at work led to illness, whether it be chemical exposures, uh, heat exposure, mechanical injury, crush, crush injury, uh, and all of the the dangers of early manufacturing. And I heard asbestos gives you mesothelioma. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, the asbestos, um, benzene compounds, uh, arsenic, all of the lead, uh, AKA Flint, Michigan, right? Uh, all right. of those uh, heavy metals that we used in manufacturing because they were useful, they were relatively easy to use and we didn't know that they were so dangerous right there's an innocence to this time as cynical as it can be about a lot of it there's a lot of things you don't know about various toxic chemicals back when you're just using them for production like um 
I joke about asbestos, but you know, turn the clock back, was it 40 years? And that was used as uh, insulation for housing. And that was everywhere, everywhere. Right. And it was considered okay, not because it was some, you know, there wasn't a mass conspiracy with some, you know, asbestos conglomerate, like, hey, we will poison all the humans. It was, <laughs> it's cheap and effective. And if you didn't know that it was a problem, right, how, how much moral blame can we give to those who, you know, used asbestos or for even those who didn't provide protections from a thing that you thought was benign? Right. And, I mean, lead um, paint, I mean, lead paint was everywhere because we didn't know that it was going to cause kids to have developmental issues because right. they're eating that sweet flavored, uh, sweet tasting paint. But now we know, then we change. But the idea is that um, the American, the thing we call the American healthcare system was built off of a premise of preserving the workforce. And that's a very different mission than cultivating health. Like that is a, that is a different presupposition at the level of what the field do, right? If I, if my entire field's reason of being is, because I can't French that no matter what, like there's a way to say that in French <laughs> and I, I, I just, I can't. I found me in Montreal. They'd listen to this podcast, they'd laugh at me. But if I, um, if you um, premise the entire field on, I will cultivate health and make exquisite, excellent, long-lived and high-performing humans, that is a different set of presuppositions than I will maintain the workforce such that illness and injury doesn't rip them out of productive labor. And neither of those goals are bad goals, right? The problem right. is that, this is why cameras are nice, I can do things like this now. The problem is that the pursuit of excellent human specimens right? Uh, the cultivation of health, the Adonis, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. was, is pursued under a foundation of preserving the workforce. And now we have two reasonably um, op opposed goals competing for the same cognitive space and resources. And who's going to win out? Well, the, the folks who have the most money are going to win out, honestly, because as you think about sick care, it, it it doesn't include children for the most part. And once someone leaves the workforce as due to disability, retirement, and just growing out of the age that you can work reasonably well, that's, that sends you all out of the sick uh, care type of pool. It's not something you have to worry about because the people with the money corporations, politicians, and whatnot, they're worried about keeping people working. They're worried about GDP and economy rather than the more idealistic, should we call it idealistic? The, the idea that we should be just maintaining a good health in all patients and all people of all ages uh, versus- I will say exported. Productive, exported. Yeah. There yeah, we go. Because because I, I can't so I can be cynical about both and idealistic about both, right? Like there is it's not to say that the prevention of illness and injury isn't worthy, because that's its own set of things. Now we have occupational med OSHA. That's not to say that the public good of health is not valuable. We have the public health systems, which to be fair have mm -hmm. been um neutered by our medical system. So we'll talk about that. Yeah. Once upon a time our public health system was quite powerful. And then uh, the AMA, there's a lot, a lot of stuff happened, but basically a lot of the 
power to do good that was housed in public health got eliminated because a lot of those functions got reabsorbed into actual medicine as such. And mm -hmm. in doing so, the incentive structures changed because medicine as such, again, going back to that premise, is targeted towards sick care. Public health is meant to, is targeted towards the prevention of illness. But when the prevention of illness becomes recategorized as a disease state, things get weird really fast. Um, and you end up with diagnoses like prediabetes. But... <laughs> Well, and, and you you start talking about public health as it re refers to regulations, and then people hear the R word regulation and think, oh, no, they're going to take my freedoms. Right. And uh, but, then you get people fighting whether or not you should wear masks during the, the 2000 or during the 1918 flu, and you realize people haven't changed much in the, the succeeding 100 years. <laughs> See, this is where I get back into our groove with the podcast. There was a song in Frozen 2 about how some things never change, but everything changes by in the song, nothing actually changes. It's a whole situation. <laughs> right. But but going back to the original idea, there's this idea that once upon a time in American medicine, the thing that we now call healthcare was built upon a foundation of sick care. And sick care was not necessarily sick everybody, it was sick workers. Uh, that that background knowledge is a critical piece to understand about our system because one of the big questions that anybody should be asking is why the heck is my access to medicine in the modern era tied to my employment? Like, what is the logic of, wait, I don't have a job, therefore I don't deserve to be healthy? That's kind of the implication of the statements, right? But without knowing the prep, the history, it's nonsensical. To be fair, I don't like it, but there was a there was a way we got there. And what's, what's interesting about that same time, there were these things called sanitariums, and Dr. Still ran one. Um, the uh, founder of Kellogg's Cereals, his brother ran one. Post Cereals founder actually went to one. And the idea behind a sanitarium, and that's how he, that's how he discovered uh, making cereals would make him money. He, he learned from Kellogg and then came out and formed his own cereal company post and these sanitariums their emphasis was health wellness prevention of illness but the problem with all of these situations was funding finances who's going to pay for this who's going to pay for that only you could only pay for it if you were well enough off to pay for it unless you were in a frontier town where you could barter for it but many of these Many of these sanitariums were frontier, you know, Michigan, Missouri, whatnot. But there were there were places other 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 places in the U.S. But ultimately, they didn't last. And I suspect and this is some conjecture on my own. They didn't last because there was no way to fund them in a sustainable way. And then we get the turn of the century. The industrialization continues on. You got the roaring twenties, and then the bottom of the economy falls out. And this led to some teachers at Baylor University, along with the the Baylor University Hospital, in coming Texas? together in Texas. <laughs> Go Texas! Uh, oh right? man, they, okay, this local. is hey. You know what? They they come to the hospital and say, "There's a group of us that want to pay a monthly fee." to you, essentially, and 
in return, if you, if, if you take this subscription from us, we'll use your, we would like to use your, your hospital as needed. And the Baylor hospital said, okay, yeah, we can do that. They, they set up a health insurance of sorts. They called it Blue Cross. Um, and I, These I, words are starting to sound familiar. I think you'll all be familiar with this. Now, <laughs> physicians saw this. I said, now, wait a second. If these hospitals take all of those, all of these patients and provide care for all of these patients, what's that going to leave us? How are we going to do? How are we going to provide ongoing care outside of the hospital system? And what's more, you know, how are we going to uh, get our patients into these hospitals if if we don't have a part in this? And so they, the physicians in the in in the area, uh, formed into a, a similar kind of group, and they called it Blue Shield. And uh, Kaiser, I believe, formed in a, a similar type of uh, setup um, out in the West about the same time, uh, as well as uh, a few others. And uh, all at this point, there were already life insurance corporations. And Blue Cross uh, was originally not calling themselves an insurer, but they were taken to court and uh, um, a court ruled that they were indeed an insurance setup. And so they had to say, okay, we're insurance. And so going back to the un uncertainty of these teachers about whether or not they were going to have access to uh, healthcare because of a, uh, a depression that was going on, they came and used their their power as a group to come together and provide a resource to help them as teachers. And one of the reasons that the hospital was willing to agree to this is because these were teachers. They were young. They were healthy. So because they were young and healthy, this was not so much of a, a financial burden to the hospital, right? The hospital could say, well, this is a great deal. They're going to pay us five bucks a month, a buck a month, some some crazy small number. It's going to make us constant income. And we are rarely going to have to pay anything in return, provide very few resources in return. And so this became a business model. The foundation for the business model that we see today, that that is healthcare, and this would set in motion all of the machinations that would lead to modern healthcare. Um, uh, and in the 1960s, we see an extension of this, where what what the public realized is. We have workers, we have teachers, and we have folks in manufacturing. They're working, they're, they're receiving their quote-unquote healthcare, but then they're retiring. And that group plan goes away. And maybe they have pensions, maybe not. And even if they do have pensions, are these pensions going to pay enough to take care of them in their old age? Because as we know, when do medical bills really pile up when you're older and you've say, lost 
exactly the, uh, um, kind of going in that idea the, the context for some of these costs so we we've we've jumped a couple timelines we've moved from the civil war era we kind of glanced through the 20s 30s the great depression we're kind of jumping to the 60s so let's let's play with some of the the developments in this time period we have we've escaped between the between civil war to basically post-world war ii era right mm -hmm. we we now have um a concept of what of antibiotics that's new we have a concept of surgical ward um that's actually relatively new in this in this timeline versus what was happening in a tent in some random battlefield you know what i mean aseptic um, technique and, and anesthesia exactly really coming in into its own we're developing various new technologies um now this is something i don't know sincerely i don't actually recall when an x when the x-ray was developed um x-rays was early 1900s i think it was around actually the turn of the century when rotengen uh, developed the first x-ray Cool. His, his x-ray was a an oopsie too <laughs> yeah that's uh hey check out this machine that lets me see bones boop 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 cancer it's yeah <laughs> god damn man, anyway cool look at my bones i mean it is pretty cool it's just you know radiation exposure but um the reason i bring this up is so why do these hospitals matter and why do these costs matter is a big question because if the timeline is roughly civil war era then our medical therapies are amputation chicken guts and cinnabar which is pretty cheap um cinnabar is what we use to make mercury mercury aka called quicksilver yada yada mm -hmm. um i i haven't called it cinnabar on the show yet but by the way that's where you get it from um but we have moved away from that era and now we have penicillin we have um insulin actually at this time at this point in time we have insulin now don't we we have, uh, have x-ray machines we have some low-level anesthetics we have the ability mm -hmm. to create septic fields we have the ability to do general surgery we are in the beginnings of the modern medicine field of uh, modern have, medicine timeline we have access to more opiates and cocaine uh among other things but the reason this matters is a lot of these things are products of industrialization right like you don't right. have an x-ray machine in your horse and buggy <laughs> <laughs> oh man i can imagine you're going to amish uh, pennsylvania and seeing an x-ray machine being pulled by a horse and buggy right right these are that's, big, that's big machines the, yeah and they require um, significant uh, resources to run with electricity and like, yeah, uh, training like and, and whatnot wires. Yeah. yeah but the reason all this matters in the i wanted to bring all that up because there's a reason costs are becoming to become big right once mm -hmm. upon a time, it would have cost you some reasonable proportion of your monthly earnings to afford medical care because the medical care was cheap and ineffective. But now medicine is becoming quite effective, right? We can stop pneumonia mm -hmm. now because we got penicillin, but man, that x-ray costs some electricity. And between the time, the investment, the material cost, the capital investment of those who built the hospitals they need to recoup and create a profit because let's be real it's a profit motive and now that cost theoretically will be fronted by the patients but there's no way for a patient to afford all these services hence the need for collective bargaining hence the need to share the cost among your colleagues co-workers right mm -hmm. um and, and there are more there are more specialists now you have to have someone who's special in running the machines and interpreting the results and you have lab 
the lab's becoming more reliable. And so that adds to the costs as well. Right. Oh, yeah. I didn't even mention pathology. We can now do things like histology. We can dye things and like we can slice stuff and look at things with microscopes and whatnot. Pathology and radiology are beautiful fields, but they cost, they, they, they take resources, they cost things. And now Joe Schmo with a horse and buggy with some chicken guts isn't good enough. Ain't going to cut it. <laughs> right. But the cost goes up as such. So part of the thing I wanted to bring up is there's a reason mm -hmm. medicine started to become so expensive. And keep in mind, all of this is prior to the insane price gouging that happens in the modern, modern era. This is the genuinely appropriate, honestly, price increases because the tech has gotten big. We are now at a tech level of medicine um, versus, you know, voodoo witch magic. Voodoo? So, you do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. There you go. The babe with the what? The babe with the power. Uh, what power? Power of voodoo. We're going to stop this now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a copyright issue here, man. But um, the uh, I wanted to bring all that up because now we have a context for why insurance matters. Okay. So the thing is, everybody in this timeline, right? When you say health insurance, we say, God damn it. Uh, because we are in <laughs> another the prior phase. authorization. Right. We are we are all in the cynical phase of American insurance, but this is a timeline. Let's put it to 1950s, 1960s. Blue Cross Blue Shield was something that your 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 priest at your church would help you sign up for because it was an act of service. This was something that uh people used to go to lodges to like com com commiserate to make friends or whatever. And like your lodge buddies or whatever, I don't know what those are called, but your lodge friends or whatever would collectively sign up for these things together because it was the cool thing to do. So like, this is not the time when people were like, oh, God damn it, I need more insurance. This was the the smart, responsible thing to do. Me, my middle-class self is to get some health insurance because God forbid I injured, these guys are out here to help me. The attitude of this time is about as saccharine as the 1950s. Because it's the 1950s. This is the Donna Reed of medicine. <laughs> cool. Just to get the vibe right. Okay. Because once you right. get to about like 1970, 1980, it's these insurance companies are evil. Burn them all. But we're not there yeah. yet. Yeah. And that's we, when the book House of God comes out and accurately uh, describes how people are feeling at the time. Right. Right. We don't have Aetna yet. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about all of this, we're, we're talking about the financial implications of the specialization and the technical developments. What we also see is a, a number of different groups saying, I want a piece of the pie. You have the allopathic, aka MDs. You have the osteopathic DOs. You have chiropractors. You have naturopaths, all vying for uh, a piece of the medical income pie. And you have a very effective American Medical Association that did a wonderful job for their uh, members, their group members, making sure they were going to get paid and they were going to take uh, a, a leading role in the development of this, this medical field. And you can understand, you know, we, we've had some bit of a discussion about the um, uh, medical purge that happened as a result of the Flexner report and the uh, ongoing um, battles between the American 
Osteopathic Association and the American Medical Association. But in reality, this was a huge battle for a, a major financial reward in, in reality. So All much right. so that uh, the, uh, the AMA particularly was successful in keeping osteopathic physicians out of the military during World War II and the Korean conflict. But what happened during those conflicts was osteopaths stayed home, chiropractors stayed home, and they built up businesses and they built up incomes successfully. So when their uh, MD colleagues came home and realized, wait a second, what did we do, right? We, we left home and uh, it, was, it was ripe for the uh, development of these other uh, professionals. So Vietnam comes around and, and uh, the military, well, they're going to start drafting doctors because they need doctors. And they had uh, initially told Dios, no, we're not going to take you because you're not doctored, right? And it took the AMA saying, now, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> I remember what happened in World War II. This isn't going to happen again. You guys need Don't to play take, yourself. You, you guys need to take DOs too into the service. And uh, I, I remember talking to some of my professors who were uh, practicing physicians during this time. They talked about how it, it changed for them when they were finally able to uh, serve in the military. And that changed, it seems like that changed everything for a public perception of physicians that are trained as osteopathic physicians. To the point now that even though only 15 to 20% of physicians in the country are osteopaths, uh, the last data I heard was that upwards of 40% of the physicians in at least the, U, in the Air Force were osteopaths or are osteopaths. That's actually, so that, I, I knew the first bit of the story. I didn't know that statistic about the 40%. That's actually really cool. Yeah. If you, if you want to get treated by a DO during the military, you get a better Force. chance. You'll have a better chance of being treated by a DO when you're in the military than when you're in that the is, civilian world. That is actually really cool. I, so obviously uh, I, I know, so uh, we both come at this from, having similar reading, but we know little bits of, we differentiate in our knowledge to some degree, which keeps the show interesting. That That's actually really cool. I had no idea. Um, seeing this from the perspective of a large amount of my colleagues uh, in med school went down the military pathway in their training, right? And for all of my med school buddies who are now um, in the military, it's funny you mentioned how many of us joined the military. And I'm like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense now that I think about it. There was there yeah. was a very big presence of uh, the U.S. Army and Navy specifically where I went to school, and mm -hmm. it was kind of like, a, hey, it's those guys. Like they're, they're, it didn't feel weird to have them around. It was like, no, no, that's one of our training pathways for those who want to do that. Go do that, and that was a sizable amount of our of our cohort. Um, what's interesting to me is this idea that we didn't become real doctors in the public perception until we became recognized by the U.S. military. Because that doesn't necessarily mean anything as far as our medical expertise, but it tells you something about how Americans uh, perceive the military, right? Mm -hmm. you, you're legitimate when the military respects you. Huh, there must be something to it. Um, 
I say that because admitting my own biases, so this is escaping the bounds of this like of this discussion a little bit. I had a very lukewarm attitude towards acupuncture for the longest time. It's like, and eh, there might be something to it, might be some magic stuff. Who knows? Like I, I came in agnostic. And I remember right. the first thing that made me go, you know what, there might be something to this. I'll pay attention. At the very early phase of my training was some guy saying, Hey, there's this protocol called battlefield acupuncture. We learned from some uh, folks. And yes. I'm like, Hold up, Wait what? A and he goes, battlefield right. acupuncture. And it's not even that it yeah. sounds cool, because like it sounds cool, whatever. But it's not even that it sounds cool. It's wait, some random dude is doing acupuncture in the middle of like the desert for some special forces, whatever. And they're saying it works. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll give it time of day. All this to say, well, I'm clearly as American as the story is. You know what I mean? Like, once you say the military's down, I go, you know what? Like it or not, there might be something to it. <laughs> which is an interestingly American phenomenon. I don't think other countries mm-hmm. necessarily have that association of if approved by government violence system, then there must be some mark of quality. This, this is a very good point. And uh, the, this definitely separates us from the rest of the developed world, at least when it comes to osteopathic medicine. But you, you, the truth is that much of our medical knowledge and medical uh, innovation has come about through the military through war actually war tends to drive innovation and we, we talked so about much quick clot. civil war but what's that oh yeah quick clot. yeah <laughs> i bought so much quick clot. modern tourniquets um uh medications surgical techniques in particular uh yeah well and because you have lots of uh ways of uh trying new things when you're in the battlefield you just got to get the bleeding to stop we are now echoing back to the beginning of this episode we're talking about the civil war there's this idea that for better or for worse or there's no moral assessment of this phenomenon the pressure of war seems to create innovation because the whole point is to survive at that point right the the extremis Mm -hmm. of that scenario forces new things to occur or die quite literally. And in the same way that the hospital systems and our surgical techniques got a massive upgrade um, because of civil war level trauma, in a similar sense, the changes in our medical field to assimilate basically the awkward step cousin DOs into the field was out of the scenarios that got built out of modern war, which is, it's a weird way to spin our story. I haven't thought of it that way before, actually. (laughs) It's, It's interesting how that developed. But uh, to circle back to our, our time in the, the 50s and 60s, we realized, okay, we're doing a pretty decent job taking care of workers and maybe their families while they're under our group plans. But what do we, what do, we do with the fo- old folks? We forget about them. We toss them over the tarp. Forget about them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, dinosaurs, not, you got... I'm not dead yet. I'm feeling <laughs> But you're going to be. I want to go for a walk. Oh man, bring out your dead. <laughs> bring These are out references your dead. to old shows for our age shows in this conversation, by the way. Um, <laughs> once upon a time, there was a show called Dinosaurs. And when you got old enough in Dinosaurs, you got thrown over the tar pit mm-hmm. because the characters were dinosaurs. And then further back than that, even before my time per se, was a show called Monty Python. And they had jokes <laughs> about the plague. It is lovely. Bring it, out your it, dead. Bring out your dad. That might <laughs> need to be witch. the name of like 
We might need to start a band and like drop that as a single. Just bring out your dead. <laughs> like we could crash oh, to that, right? We we could do that. We could do it. All right, could all totally right. jam to that. New side project. All right. Anyway, <laughs> um, all this to say, in the 1950s, we had to sort out what to do with our old folk, because as you know, in this country, uh, again, this is a very American-based episode because we're dealing with American history. Um, mm-hmm. We don't. We're not kind to our elderly. And this shows at this level of decision-making. It was this idea that once you're old enough to be out the workforce, you're technically not a problem anymore. Go die. Yeah, um, I mean, your family was expected to take care of you. Your community was to some extent. And there were some community organizations that, that did help. But there was no uh, really organized effort to provide care in the same way that uh, the young, productive members of society are, were receiving care. Right. And uh, because of this, and this happened also at the same time of, you know, the great society movement, the war on poverty. Uh, we, we won't get into the politics of all of that kind of stuff. But uh, at, at the same time frame, there was the idea that, okay, we're going to need to find some way to care for the elderly because one of the side effects of medical, modern medical innovation is people living longer right people not dying at childbirth nearly so much people not dying from injuries nearly so much people not dying from infection nearly so much so what are we going to do when someone lives to retirement age and you are now old enough to suffer yeah yeah from from chronic stuff and people smoking like crazy drinking like crazy so they're having all of these chronic issues that uh, we didn't have good solutions yet you know, lung cancer and emphysema and all of these kinds of things. But they're because living longer because they didn't matter. They, they, didn't, they didn't matter. Because, you well, died first of something else like sepsis. Yeah. Yeah, childbirth, sepsis, falling somewhere, breaking a bone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just there was lots of ways to die on the frontier that were not happening anymore in the, the 1900s. And so we finally came together and said, okay, well, Let's let's make a group plan for all the people that uh, can't afford a group plan, and we'll call it Medicare and Medicaid for younger folks in the uh, in, in certain circumstances. And for clarification, because those are very clear words with you and I. The Medicare was written as the um, group plan for the elderly, mm-hmm. and Medicaid was written, roughly speaking, as the group plan. For the for the destitute, it was meant as the poverty plan. Exactly, um, it's they, and, they've and morphed the, a little this, bit, but yeah, this is how they started. Disabled and whatnot. Yeah. What was interesting about that is you get the centers for Medicare, and they start having an influence on medicine in the ways that medicine was going to be funded. They started saying things like, "We're not going to pay that much for that service," or "We're not going to pay at all for that service." At the same time, uh, other groups started coming out with um, health maintenance organizations, HMOs. Um, we're starting to say modern so, words. Started starting into the modern world, and they were more uh, built similar to Medicare, Medicaid, as as a group, uh, where you would have now in network, in network providers. You know, we we kind of lost the prestige of the word physician because 
physician has been slowly eroded into providers, which I'm not a big fan of, but you hear that all the time. Um, but again, the, none of the emphases of these organizations, the emphasis of, of Medicare was not prevention. The emphasis of Medicare was take care of the sick and old because they're already sick because they're old and they haven't uh, they haven't prevented um, uh, illness yet um, because that wasn't the emphasis. So right. again, we we look at what uh, these systems did and they they were still providing sick care, but now the sick care was not for the sick working; it was for the sick non-working. And so now sick, we have, yeah, yeah, you got it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, so now we, we just spread out sick care. We didn't spread out healthcare, if you will, but uh, you were saying. Well, I was, I, I thought your sentence was going to go somewhere else. There's like a little lag time between, you know, we're online. I thought mm -hmm. you're going to say uh, for the elderly, I didn't realize you're going to say for the unemployed. So no, we're good. We're good. We're good. Um, good I'm good, agreeing good. with this idea that Medicare, Medicaid was designed to essentially distribute the benefits of pretty damn effective sick care over a wider population, which is not the same as saying preventive care or, or wellness or something of that nature. And there was not nearly the emphasis on how do we get to be old without being sick, right? How do we get through our productive years without losing significant uh, uh, capability from a wellness side. We're, we're not trying to prevent illness. You know, a lot of what we do in our in our clinic is trying to catch disease processes early on before they become a problem, before they become a true disease, right? But there wasn't much of that going on. And so you see- You're uh, alluding current... to osteopathic heritage now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and what was interesting, about all of this is osteopaths see the trends you know they got their finger to the wind and uh they're throwing up the grass seeing the which way is blowing and they're going well we can either play the game or we can be left in the dust and if left in the dust is what was going to happen that that means extinction truly and so in order to protect the heritage and the profession, they decided to play the game. And I'm, I have to say I'm glad they, they did because we wouldn't be here today. This would not be a podcast today. We wouldn't be here having the, these discussions. I'd probably be an engineer. play the game. <laughs> I would be a computer programmer. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I could see it. <laughs> <laughs> I just about bricked my new computer last night until I played with the BIOS, but that's another discussion for another day. <laughs> you understand me. but uh, Although um, that being said, a lot of what we do is playing with your metabolic BIOS. So I'm just I mean, saying. There's, so there's a reason the, the tech nerd and the wannabe engineer end up coming DOs. And that's actually worth considering. Um, so upfront with the baggage of our field, for a lot of folks, becoming a DO is like a backup option to becoming an MD. No shame there. We, we know this. We're aware of this, right? We talked about that in episode yep. two. But um, uh, for me, at least, there was actually, this was an active decision to pursue this route 
because what I saw in osteopathy, um, if you guys recall from earlier discussions on the show, was this weird place where medical care or the pursuit of health was being performed in a way that was not completely incompatible with an engineered mindset, as opposed to a strictly medical mindset, medical now taking on the connotations we needed to, uh, describing what medicine has evolved into, right? Like the Absolutely. concept of sick care um, doesn't necessarily exist at the level of find health, but find health itself needs to be articulated. That's its own identity, right? But yeah, the DOs decided to play the game and osteopathy became osteopathic medicine and, you know, cosmic powers and all that good stuff. Um, by joining the system, what ends up happening is now we have physicians trained osteopathically as opposed to osteopaths and that that title shift right from being an osteopath to being a physician who practices osteopathy now it's called osteopathic medicine has a very interesting tension which we've explored multiple times right but absolutely and, and here we are and i'm i am glad we played the game because now we are in the system and we, we can have get paid much, for our services. We can pay for our service. And on top of that, we can influence the system in ways that we couldn't if we were in any other field, if we were if we were outsiders and we were just doing osteopathic stuff uh, in the community. I, I, it's not to say our osteopathic colleagues in other countries don't have influence. They do, and they do great work. I just think that with us in our current place, it's a good thing we played the game because right. that gives us additional opportunities to see patients in ways that we couldn't. That's I actually mean, a recurring we... theme with you and I, like you and me specifically. For example, mm -hmm. um, the work, so a lot of the work uh, that you and I do clinically, like at our day job, really lives in the cash space. Like at, at a very honest level, half of what we do closes in on concierge medicine um at the level of the nuts and bolts but by playing in the system and staying within the traditional medical system we get to get to more people we get to do it in a way that we wouldn't be able to do if we were to fully embrace this punk rock maverick version of us right um that we got no satisfaction the <laughs> there you go you understand me <laughs> there's something to be said about being in the system just enough to influence the system and undermine it just enough to make it better, which mm -hmm. is a recurring trend with at least you and I, right? Both in our field and in our choice of employment, actually, now that you come to think about it. But that that is something that is a borderline central tenet. That no, no, that means something else now. Never mind. That is a borderline uh axiomatic presupposition to how the DOs converted from being osteopaths to osteopathic physicians in the United States. The idea of getting the system just enough to infiltrate and exist. And now within that system, this modern system that that is still based on the premise that we should be treating sick people rather than we should be producing healthy people, there is a great deal of tension right now on how do we go about creating a healthy society versus just taking care of sick patients. And what is our role as a osteopath and as a physician in producing a, a healthy society? Because we see this even in our clinic. 
there's not a nearly so much of a financial incentive to be producing healthy people because if, uh, if people if are healthy, they're not coming the CMO, in. Man. <laughs> well, I, I remember a conversation I had with a nurse while I was active duty. She was yeah. a civilian at this point. She had been active duty at one point. And this is what happened at our at a clinic that she worked in. They had this great idea that when a military family would move in, they would have a meeting with the family and they would tell the family, okay, these are the indications for coming to the doctor. These are what you want to look for symptom wise. If you don't have these symptoms, don't come in, you'll be fine. And it worked amazing. It worked amazing. So amazing that they had visits drop significantly. And then the administration has came to them and said, what did you do? People aren't coming to the clinic. We can't prove your value. We can't prove that we need as many physicians as we have because we're not having visits. So you know what they did? They canceled the classes. They canceled the classes. Because it's an interesting thing because that echoes. Oh, sorry. Finish your story, please, please, please. Because there was no financial incentive. There was no incentive to prevent people from coming to the doctor. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting thing because so I, I provide my, I guess, health pursuing services to, to differentiate from sick care medical services mm-hmm. uh, to my patients, right? In our at our day job. But taking a moment to make sure, yeah, no, this is fine. Okay, cool. Had to think about it for a second. <laughs> I am explicitly less productive from a money generation standpoint, prioritizing this wellness thing than I am prioritizing the treatment of pathology. And keep in mind, even in the context of me provide, so a, a lot of what I do clinically, a lot of you and I do is what? We we get patients physically stronger. We try to get them off their medications. Like we like existing in the sick space, I focus on fatty liver disease. I focus on type two diabetes. I focus on obesity, right? In the language of sickness, those are the things I treat. But and those are the source for a vast number of other illnesses. Right. But we found out, as ridiculous as this is, if your patients get well enough that they don't need to be on their medications or their type 2 diabetes, you actually lose out on money because we're awarded for giving them medications for their type 2 diabetes. So for example, mm-hmm. and keep in mind, this is not a conspiracy. This is not like a bad guy type of situation. No, What's happening is... Right. When the system is built for pathology, you have assumptions built into the payment structure, right? For example, if you have a disease that is likely to give you a heart attack, type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. then one of the things you ought to do to protect your patient with the sickness is to give them something called a statin so that you can protect them from the probability of the heart attack. Fair enough. We can critique that. We can comment. on That's a different discussion. But the logic of that is sound, right? Right. Now, the alternative is, what if you just got rid of their diabetes so that they don't need the statin, so that they don't get the heart attack, which is also stop a very the presses. fair line of thought. Right. Yeah, stop the but, presses. It's, a, it's, it's a revolutionary. Right. In, but what we found out, ways. yeah, what we found out was we actually get paid less for doing that because mm-hmm. the bells and whistles we need to hit in the system to get paid don't have a presupposition where the removal of disease is even possible. The absence of disease is a non-entity. It's like it's a zero state in the game. 
such that it doesn't even go on the board, such that you can't even get paid for it because it didn't happen. Right. I mean, if going on this example of diabetes, if someone's hemoglobin A1C is above 7, 7.5, we recommend, or the, the current recommendations are to recheck that A1C every three months. And if we if that A1C continues to be elevated, they're coming in for visits on a regular basis because their diabetes isn't controlled. So what if you have a patient who has a diet who has A1C of 10? You're talking about getting on insulin. You do some basic dietary changes and add exercise, and you see them in three months and their A1C is seven. And then three months later, their A1C is 5.5. They don't have to follow up with you anymore, nearly so frequently. They're not taking so many meds. Quite often get them off meds. So where is the income for the clinic in that? Where is the profit to the pharmaceutical companies in that model? The, uh, I mean, even thinking about that from an insurance company, you would think insurance companies would be saying, hey, yeah, that's great. You're, you're making us profit because we're not paying so much, but they don't, they don't tend to think of things in that way. Right. And These are actually other, negotiations other... I'm having in the day job lately, um, trying to show exactly. insurance companies, you know, in a very formal sense, this is the value of the osteopathic thing. Like at a very technical level, like um, I'm going to go into World of Warcraft speak for just a second because I don't go know how it. to convey this in, in a, at a high level. So in World of Warcraft, wow. World of Warcraft is an MMORPG. That's a fancy word for a bunch of folks doing nerd massive, things in a video massive game. Massive multiplayer role-playing game. <laughs> there you go. One of the roles you can play in this game is a healer. So like some mm -hmm. some character some play some people want to play characters that do damage some people want to play characters who tank damage as and protect other characters from damage some players i'm a doctor no surprise want to play healers mm -hmm. think about that actually so <laughs> i i liked playing healing characters i played a, i rolled a priest basically and in the priest role there are three builds one of them doesn't matter for this because it's a shadow priest it actually does damage it's a dps class it's fun but it's not what i'm talking about you can play a, I think it was holy or protection. I forget the words. Point being, you can either, you can heal two ways in that game. You can either heal damage that has occurred, as in guy got hit, fix him up. Or you can provide buffs, um, bonuses, armor, and things of that nature. Right. Such that the make, damage make never other happens. stronger. Right. Exactly. And exactly. both of those builds are completely valid. Um, and depending on the scenario, both of those builds are better at different scenarios, right? But um, it's easier to show the value of that in a video game because it's literally a video game. They can track it. But in, in real life, it's as if the system is only designed to track the healing of damage. But there's no concept of, what do you mean the damage never occurred? <laughs> That's like, there's true. No, there's right. no way to show like, you mean what do the you damage mean? never occurred. You mean we prevented it in the first place? Right, right. And that's that that's an existential problem for the sick care system because we've learned at the level of medical care globally that in the modern era, so like now we're talking about the modern, modern era right now, we're kind of past the point of trauma and infection. Although mm -hmm. antibiotic resistance, let's see what happens in 20 years. Right now, and people we are past still jump the... off of high things. Exactly. Like Dumb stuff happens, but it's not a public health emergency yet. Yeah. Yet. But 
right now, the biggest risk to our public health, um, as in population level pathology, is obesity, diabetes, sedentary behavior, and deconditioning. Like we're weak, obese, and we are quite literally getting sick off of our food. And like that is the problem of our era. And the way we fix that effectively is to ultimately stop people from getting there, which is fine. But how do you assess the value of a life not hurt? Like, that sounds like a really cool, like, it well, sounds like a lyric in a song. But that's an interesting discussion to have because for an insurance company, it makes sense to allow a 60-year-old to die of a massive heart attack because that is a an initial uh, expense that's pretty high up front because hospital stay, ED visit, all of that kind of stuff, and, and you do heroic medicine to try to save their life. But what if they live till they're 95 and they spend the last 10 years of their life in a nursing home and they spend the last 10 years of their life going to a doctor visit every week or every other week, once a month, those expenses add up. So it actually doesn't make sense for an insurance company from a financial standpoint to help someone to live that long. Right. It actually makes sense for them to die quick, early, young. Right. And look, that sounds perverse as hell, right? Like that doesn't sound like we care about the humans because at this level of analysis, we actually don't, right? Um, from a cost-saving perspective, the game is to save costs. Uh, the, what about our shareholders, Bob? Right, right. The The insurance companies, which are companies, are profit-generating corporations, which are beholden to the rules of corporations. And it is actually written into law that a corporation must you know, decide and act for the benefit of its shareholders, which is not the same as perform a service, right? The corporation's job isn't to produce or to do per se, it's to bring value to those who own it. And exactly. that is a different set of incentives, once again. Um, and when the product of the corporation is the saving of money for those who invested to provide care, now all of a sudden the incentive becomes how do we not provide care? Um, and now we have the prior off. We're the only medication that works for this person because they've tried everything else. Exactly. But, um, uh, I, and I, I think this this is an important conversation that, that we need to, to definitely flesh out. How do we provide preventive medicine? I, I tell my patients all the time, I'm trying to get you to the point where you don't need me anymore. And I, I laugh and I said, it's not a great business practice, but it's great for you because that's ultimately what we as healers are needing to do. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's I, a true balance between taking good care of our clinic because, and I, I tell our residents and our, our students all this all the time, if you don't keep the lights on and the windows and the doors open and the windows for that matter, you can't take care of patients. But at the same time, there is some tension in that we need to take care of patients in such in such a way that they receive appropriate preventive care as well as heroic care. Right. I joke that if I do my job right, I'll be out of business by my 40s so I can go do something else like play my guitar, hang with some kids, <laughs> build an AI. I don't know. That's you know right. what I mean? Like there's other things out there, but the idea if we're pursuing this to its logical endpoint is if we do the osteopathic thing well, 
or rather if we do the preventive thing we're doing well at at the highest level the thing that makes us relevant should go away and then we either find a new mission or we i guess die of starvation i guess yeah you know i mean like i wouldn't know what i would sure. do if there was no diabetes as a physician at the same time i am actively motivated to make diabetes not a thing because the second that thing is done i'm going to hang up my shingle and find a different job like what else am i going to do now that's being said almost in a ridiculous fashion there are you know as far as one user is concerned one person there might as well be an infinite amount of people so i can technically just make the job going through people up until my endpoint that being said you know what i mean is there a way to well, scale I mean, that and i i think what we're we're taking this discussion in future future episodes is how to scale it um, right. because ultimately one of the major tenets of osteopathic medicine is is wellness of the patients and um this this deserves further discussion so i was so hoping you were going to say find it fix it and leave it alone right there we are going to help <laughs> find a fix for our unhealthy system but we'll find it fix it and leave it alone and uh, thanks for joining us on the show tonight and this evening we are excited about uh, where we're taking this and uh, uh everyone have a great week and join us for our next episode of Rolling Bones, the Osteopathic Podcast. Rolling Bones, the Osteopathic Podcast, is brought to you by Drs. James Aston and Dante Paredes. We'd like to note that medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast represents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and OMT and will be as evidence-based as possible. Now, comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome, but no money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agreed not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston Dante Paredes or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Please visit us on Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod or send us messages at Rollin' Bones Pod at gmail.com. Thank you.